We're going to be answering the question this morning, where does sin come from? Perhaps you often are tempted to make an excuse for your sin. Perhaps you even find yourself excusing some sin yesterday when the weather and the temperature outside got to 109 degrees and you're sitting in sweltering heat and find yourself impatient or, 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 or angry or maybe some of the government restrictions we're experiencing during the shelter at home orders are, are, you might use them as an excuse for sin. Where does this sin come from when we are angry or impatient or when we covet or where does that sin come from? James is going to help us understand where that sin comes from and where it doesn't. If you have your Bibles, turn to James 1. I'm going to start at verse 12, although I would encourage you as you meditate during the week to keep reading through even the whole book of James, uh, but if not the whole book, then definitely this first chapter. And we're going to, uh, and, and I'll review a little bit, you'll see that James continues to be uh, dealing with us us enduring in the midst of trials. And what is coming out during these trials for James' audience um, was causing him concerns whether they really knew the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I particularly appreciate the uh, songs this, this morning. Really, I probably say that every week because of how full of grace they are. But this is a good passage to be focusing on God's grace um, because James does say some hard-hitting things. I'm going to read from James 1. I'll read from verses 12 through 18 this morning, but we're going to be focusing on verses 13 to 15. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James became, began his letter to, this, to the first century Jewish Christians these Christians who were scattered across the Roman Empire with a tremendous challenge. And we saw that in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And that's quite a way to start a letter to people who were poor and oppressed and persecuted. Would they count their trials joy because of what God was using trials to accomplish in their lives? Would they pass this testing of their faith by enduring and by ultimately maturing and growing? We saw last week that James returned to this theme of trials, showing that that's what he's been talking about in all of chapter 1 so far, when he said, blesses the person who perseveres under trial. The person who perseveres is the one who receives the crown of life the reward of eternally loving God and, and, and worshiping Him and serving Him for eternity. God welcomes into eternity those who endure. 
The characteristic of those who receive this crown of life are those who endure the trials of life. But James is aware that his readers are going to struggle with this worldview of counting trials joy. Counting trials as joy requires both faith in God and submission to Him. Persevering is going to require wisdom. It's a commitment to live life God's way, to bring theology into practice. And we saw that, that, that call to wisdom in verses 3 through 5. But not everyone is willing to submit to doing life God's way. Some waffle. They are undecided between these two worldviews. Balancing which they should go. Should they be all in and willing to look at these trials as God's plan to perfect them? Or are they going to complain and grumble and in fear and distrust, always looking and saying, well, that way looks tempting too. Would they wholeheartedly follow God's way of wisdom? See, those who refuse to ask for wisdom and faith struggle to persevere in the unique circumstances that God has ordained for their lives. And that's where James goes next in verses 9 through 11. Some of those circumstances are poverty. Perhaps it is the poor struggling with God's wisdom who, who refuse to rejoice in their future the future exaltation they have to look forward to. Instead, they complain about what they don't have. They are dejected and become embittered. And it's not just about, about money, although definitely that. It can be all of God's will for their lives. Or perhaps, and James addresses, the rich, who he calls to boast in their, in their humiliation, but instead of, of boasting and being brought low at the foot of the cross, instead they are, are ravaged by greed and selfishness and consumed with the lust for more. See, both the poor and the rich may be tempted to blame God for their lack of endurance. The poor man may shake his fist at God and say, Why, God? Why, why have you given me more suffering than I can endure? And the rich maybe aren't shaking their fists at God, but they look shamefully away and say, well, it's not my fault. I can't handle all the prosperity that God has given me. Why has God given me more affluence and more freedom than I can manage? That's really what we're tempted to do, to blame God for our lack of endurance. Now, any who, who blame God for their lack of endurance, they, it, it appears like you can find a, a theological basis. That you can ground that criticism in God's word because God is sovereign, right? He, he doesn't have to have me be lonely. He could have me be married. He doesn't have to have me be impoverished. He could have me rich. He doesn't have to have me be rich. He could have me impoverished. What, well, isn't God sovereign? He is, after all, and James is very clear about this, the one who, who tests and who tries us. And whether that, that trials by giving an abundance or by withholding necessities. God is the one who gives and takes away. 
And the Old Testament had, had, had many examples of God being the one who is sovereign over testing. And James' Jewish audience would have been aware of some of these examples. One of the most famous would have been in Genesis 22, when God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now, God had a plan. It wasn't ultimately for Abraham to kill his son. But Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, It came up about after these things that God tested Abraham. He tried Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and, he say, and then he calls him to sacrifice his son. Well, God stops Abraham before doing so. And in verse 12, he says, Don't stretch out your hand against this lad and do nothing to him, for I know that you fear God. See, God had tested Abraham to reveal that Abraham feared God. Again, the, the, the Jewish audience that James was writing to would be very aware that God was sovereign over testing. In Exodus 16, verse 4, the Lord describes to Moses how he, he's going to have the people of Israel pick up manna from the ground each day. He says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. They weren't supposed to gather two days unless it was in preparation for the Sabbath, but just each day, and every day was going to be a test. Whether or not they will walk in my instruction, God says. See, God tested them to reveal whether they would walk in his instruction. Of course, God knows the outcome of every test. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. But he tests to, to cultivate our faith and to test our obedience, to reveal what is inside our hearts. In Deuteronomy 8.2, God says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. In Exodus, it was as they were getting ready uh, to go into those 40 years of wilderness wandering. Here it's afterwards, Deuteronomy 8, 2, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so the, the Jews that James was writing to knew that God was sovereign over testing. They knew of the story of how, of how Job, how God allowed Job to be tested. They knew of, of, of King Hezekiah, and it says in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 31, after God allows Hezekiah to live longer, it says that God um, let, left him to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. So the Jews understood that God was sovereign over the circumstances of our life, and God is over, sovereign over every circumstance in your life. That's true of you today, every circumstance. So as James is writing these, these saints, these first century saints, maybe only 10 years after Jesus rose from the dead, as he sees that they're struggling to endure as they go through persecution and oppression and poverty, some we're rich and enjoying the best of life, but many were lacking the daily necessities. And James knows where their hearts are going to go. He sees them getting ready to find a, a theological scapegoat. I know who is to blame for my not enduring. I know why I'm struggling with this sin. It's God's fault. Now, this is not a new tactic. In Genesis 3, 11 and 12, God says to Adam, after he fails God's test and eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God knows. 
And the man, Adam, said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. This woman, this helpmate you gave me, it's her fault. And Adam blames God's sovereign circumstances for his sin. Saul tries to do the same in King Saul in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 15, 20-21. Saul said to Samuel, after Saul disobeyed God's God's command to wipe out the, the, the Amalekites and their livestock. He says, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of, of Amalek, which is not what God required, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But here's the blame. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, a sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. This is all, all about God's plan. This is about obeying God, about bringing him a sacrifice. It's the people who did this. See, we see in ourselves that there is a deep desire to blame our circumstances for our sin. But really, when we blame our circumstances, we are ultimately blaming God for our sins. And James knows that the believers, whether they're going through the worst of times or the best of times, would be tempted to blame God when we see ourselves slipping, when we see ourselves failing to endure. But blaming God is not only theologically impossible, and it is, we're going to find out, it is theologically impossible. But blaming God obscures, it hides the real danger you face. And that real danger is not God's sovereignty. That real danger is you. It is your enemy within. It is you. God is not our enemy seeking to get us to sin. You are the enemy. We are the enemy. In James 1, verses 13 to 15, James warns us against blaming God for our our failure to persevere during trials. To blame circumstances that God has decreed. He warns us against that. Instead, he exposes our true enemy, what the real source of our temptation is. So this morning, we're going to look at four truths regarding temptation so that you will endure. We're going to look at four truths regarding temptation so that you will endure, so that you don't blame God, but that you see what the real source of your sin is. The first truth is that God is not the origin of our temptation. Our temptation does not begin with God. God is not the origin of our temptation. In James 1, 13, he commands, let no one say when he's tempted, don't go there, don't say this, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. That's James 1, 13. Now, as we've noted in, 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 in previous weeks, this, 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 this word family, test or trial or temptation, it all comes from the same basic Greek root word. So this word tempted in verse 13, it can be translated as tried. It can be translated as tested. But here, and context shows it's the right translation, is translated as tempted. And this, this, this word root points to the circumstances that reveal the, the character or the nature of something. And context makes clear that there is a shift here from the trials that James had previously been speaking of and now to to temptation. From the God-given trials, which reveal the health of our faith, 
to temptation, this enticement to sin. And James is answering a, a, a easy to imagine ob, 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 objection, excuse me, especially from someone who's feeling guilty. And maybe you've been feeling that as we've gone through James 1. You know, in James 1 verse 2, James had revealed the purpose of trials. It was endurance leading to maturity. In verse 12, he, he revealed that as we persevere in trials, that we are rewarded with this eternity with God, this, this crown of life, this full capacity to love and enjoy God and obey him forever. But what about the believer who's not persevering in trials? And that's really why, why, why James, I won't say it's all that reason. To some, he's encouraging who are enduring. But he's also concerned, as we read the book, those who are not enduring those for whom trials are exposing all kinds of sin. So what's a, what, what, what is the saint to say who is falling into sin, who, who's, who's, who's getting a not, not A's on his enduring report card? He's, he's not passing God's test. If God is using trials to bring about maturity, what's going on inside of those who aren't enduring? who are responding in sin to trials, whose, whose lives are not been marked by the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and, guide, and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And that fruit of the spirit from Galatians 5 really uh, epitomizes the heart of what James is going to be calling the believers to in the rest of the book. But what happens when your lives aren't characterized by that fruit? Is God to blame for, for our sin in response to the trials that he's choosing? When God tempts us, when God tests us with a health crisis, is he tempting us to worry? When God tests us with a financial shortfall, is he, he tempting us to complain or maybe to steal? When God tests us with loneliness, is he tempting us to find a relationship outside of God's instruction or to become embittered against him? When God tests us with disappointment, is he tempting us to shake our fist at him because we aren't getting what we want? When God tests us with giving us our, our, something far better beyond our wildest dreams, is he tempting us to boast or to become complacent or just to be satisfied with our own lives? See, James commands his readers, when you are tempted, when you are choosing whether to do something evil or not, you must not say, I am being tempted by God. See, God is not trying to elicit a wicked response from you. God is not tormenting you the way a child sometimes torments their brother or sister. Seeing, seeing how much annoyance they can take before they snap. And, and I don't know why one sibling will do that to another, but, but, but it happens. And there's, there's some kind of wicked joy in seeing if they can push them to the breaking point. That is not like our God. Our God is not rattling on the fence of our lives trying to see if he can awaken sin and get it to come out growling and snapping. God does not want you to stumble and James gives two clear reasons why we know that God doesn't tempt. And the first is God's own nature. He says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted by evil. 
God himself does not desire evil. There's no secret corner of God's nature which finds sin exciting or finds sin somehow alluring. He doesn't have, have some secret appetite for something disgusting. It's, it, 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 is, it is interesting when we think uh, about how some people enjoy watching horror movies, you know, movies that are filled with violence and, and gore and danger and, and somehow thrilling, even though the, the, the person hates what's going on, there's still this, this kind of this fascination with it. That is not God. God has, has no secret, and, and, and we know in those horror movies, it, it is imaginary, right? God has, has no secret desire for real wickedness. It has no, it promises him no satisfaction. It doesn't get his heartbeat going, or at least not in a way that he wants. God is not a thrill seeker. He doesn't, he's not riding a moral roller coaster of the universe, terrified at what he'll experience when he finally gets to the fall. Right? He's not like just buckled in saying, oh, I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. And he anticipates and like, woo! God is not tempted by evil. God is holy. Isaiah 6.3 describes God. It describes the angels in heaven calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. Psalm 5 verse 4, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. He cannot tolerate it. Psalm 11, verses 4 through 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test. And there's some of that testing language there, the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. The Lord loves righteousness. Habakkuk 1 verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Uh, some, some of you know that I really hate eggs. I don't mind eggs if they are in a cake. I love eggs in a cake. But eggs in any form, boiled or fried, or even the smell of eggs can sometimes turn my stomach. But every once in a while, I'll be watching a cooking show. And, 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 and the omelet, it looks so light and fluffy, and there's cheese in it, and maybe some bacon, and there's some interesting things there. And I think, oh, maybe one day I'll take a bite. No, I don't really think that's going to happen. But I'm tempted. God is not tempted by evil in the way that I could occasionally someday be tempted by an omelet. God has no taste for evil. Have you ever felt the total, total disgust against someone's sin? And I know that you have. And, 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 and you've, you've read a news report of just these horrible things happening. Or you, you're, you're reading a, a, a history book of an atrocity that has happened. And you feel this, this, this hatred of sin. God's hatred of your sin, of your sin, is greater than your hatred of the most violent act of oppression and abuse. God's hatred of your sin is greater than your most righteous hatred of the most violent act of oppression and abuse. See, because you, in your fallenness, 
are still more likely to want to participate in a great atrocity than God in his holiness is likely to try to get you to do even a small sin. Because God is infinitely more holy than us. We have the potential for evil and he has none. He despises and he will never try to get you to sin even in the smallest way. And that's why James knows that God is not tempting you in the circumstances of your life, whether in abundance or in need. He says God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And that's the second reason. He himself does not tempt anyone. You see, God is not behind the curtain of your life. He's not there kind of munching on popcorn behind the scenes, waiting to see if you fall into a trap he's set for you. He's not in some kind of massive TV studio with millions of screen, trying to to punk people on some kind of candid camera show in order to capture them lying or complaining or gossiping and boasting, not giving them, them, them incredible circumstances to try to elicit sin from them. God ordains tests. He plans every trial, but his purpose is to examine obedience, not to entice wickedness. He wants to prove our faithfulness and not procure faithlessness. His purposes are to strengthen our faith and not to elicit disloyalty. He wants you to be covenant loyal and not covenant disloyal. He wants you you, you to love him and not do what he hates. See, God's desire in your testing is everything that James has been talking about so far. It is your endurance and your maturity and you being rewarded with that crown of life. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have put your faith in Christ, if God has regenerated you and sealed you with his spirit so that you have new life, God has given you every resource to obey when you are tested. John 15 verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, Jesus says, if you abide in me and if I am in you, if if you are participating in my life, Jesus says he bears much fruit. You bear much fruit if you are in Christ Jesus. Apart from him, you could do nothing. But in Christ, you can bear much fruit. You have the capacity to obey, saint. In Romans 6, verses 8 through 11, Paul Paul says, if we have died with Christ, if we have been united with him so that Christ has taken the punishment of our sins, we believe that we shall also live with him in his resurrection. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. And that's describing Jesus, but that describes us in Jesus Christ. Even so, verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You saint, if you are saved, you are alive. You can bear much fruit. You do not have to give into sin. Oh, let it f- meditate on those, that Romans 6 passage, that, that brilliant doctrine, verses 8 through 11, but all, all that Romans 6, you do not have to succumb to sin. If God has united you to his son in faith, That is so that you would endure when you're tested, so that you could endure like Christ endured. And we know that that is an increasing endurance in this life. It is not automatically perfect, but he has united you with him so you can endure. Not, not so that you would succumb when tempted. That is not the purpose of your union in Christ. 
See, God's testing is not like Satan's tempting. Satan is the murderer from the beginning. He has always wanted to kill your soul. But God desires you, your, your success in Christ Jesus. He desires you to please him. He has equipped you for obedience in Christ. When we blame God for our temptation by saying, God, you've brought these circumstances upon me. This is your fault. You are really blaspheming God. We, 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 we're, we're trying to corrupt God into something he's not, a wicked God, more like that tempter Satan. We must not do that. So then how are we to process? If God is not responsible for our temptation... We can't blame God for our temptation. How are we to process this? How are we to explain this fact that we don't endure when we are tempted? That we respond with impatience and complaining, with escape or self-reliance. How do we explain what's going on? Who is to blame? Who's the scapegoat? Who's the fall guy? I think we know where this is going. God is not the origin of our temptation. Our lust is the origin of our temptation. That's the second truth. Our lust is the origin of our temptation. We see that in James 1.14. That's the second truth. Our lust is the origin of our temptation. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The source of temptation is internal. And, and to show the, 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 the emphasis in Greek, it's kind of more like each is tempted by his own lust, being carried away and enticed. Each is tempted by his own lust. The English word lust, uh, as, as, as translated here in the New American Standard Version, could also be translated as desires or, or, or cravings. See, the Greek word for desire is not an inherently sinful word. Now, the, the desire, the craving, it can be sinful. But desires can be good within God's created order under God's law. Desires for, for pleasure and for companionship, for accomplishment, for creativity, for beauty, for satisfaction of body, for satisfaction of soul, for, for, for emotions. These can be good desires, but they are broken by the fall. As we have sinned in Adam and if we've been born with the sin natures, our desires are corrupted by the sin nature. And this is why the New American Standard, Standard translates them as lust. Right? When we say the word lust, we have this negative idea, and the American Standard wants to bring that out, that, that these are, are broken desires. These corrupted desires, these lust, it may be an a, a, a inordinate desire for something which may be good. It may be a desire for something which God allows in some circumstances, or even a desire for something which God commands in his word. But because our lusts are corrupt, because we are rotten internally, we want these desires too much. And we are willing to sin to satisfy this craving, or we are willing to sin when this craving is not satisfied. As one biblical counselor said, a good desire becomes a bad desire when it becomes a ruling desire. A good desire becomes a bad desire or a lust when it becomes a ruling desire when we sin to get it. These lusts may also be a desire for something wicked, though. Something which God simply forbids in his word. 
Every sinful lust is against God's law, whether it is in the object of the lust, whether it is in the timing of the lust, is not according to God's timeline, or the extent of the lust. It's just more than God has given. Our own lust, our corrupt desire is the source of temptation. It is not God's testing. As Jesus says in Mark 7, verses 21 to 23, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries and deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus says these come from your heart. You are the origin of your temptation. As Moses wrote in the days of Noah, Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Without Jesus Christ, every thought is evil continually. It is all about satisfying self. Paul explains the hopelessness of that condition apart from Christ in Romans 8, verses 7 to 8. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. We, 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 we hear that the internet went out. I don't know if you've missed a snippet or not. We're currently talking about how we are the source of our temptation. We've looked at Mark 7, 21 to 23, and we see how Jesus says that it comes from, from within our hearts. We're at Romans 8, 7 to 8 now, and how the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not, is not even able to do so. It cannot do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They can't please God because they are seeking to please themselves. They have an overwhelming competing desire. And that is who we are apart from Jesus Christ. We have an overwhelming competing desire for self to please self. James describes what's going on in our heart here. He says, he describes lust and kind of personifies lust as a hunter or, or as a, a fisherman. And James uses two verbs, both having to do with capturing animals. And the first is, is carried away. The idea is, is drawing away and to, to get someone to leave where it's safe. And the second is enticed. And the idea is to be catching with, with, with bait, to, 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 to lure and together the verbs picture what your lust inside of you, what your broken, corrupt cravings do. Lust desires to have its cravings satisfied, and it seeks to gain our participation. It wants us to submit our will to lust. But since we have to be willing, lust always lies. Lust deceives. Lust seeks to capture us, to get our foot in the snare, to get our lips around that hook. And our will has to be trapped. It has to be tricked. It has to be dragged away and enticed. Lust is, is, is like that man who puts a bag out of the, the bag of candy out of the car window to, to drag us from the safety of our front lawns and then promises candy if we get into the front seat. He drags and he lures. That's what our lust does. This is where our sin comes from. Lust corrupts, corrupts testing into temptations. What God decrees as a test, lust turns into temptation. Lust exploits the, the, the opportunity 
from the test and, and less promises, satisfaction. If you only listen to a few lies, Les says, if you affirm the value of what I'm holding out to you, if you can say that this piece of fruit does look good, if you're willing just to move a little bit closer to incline your ear, that's what our internal, broken, rotten lust wants. For you to make the first movement toward toward, toward. Uh, toward compromise. And then lust has you. You're trapped. The jaws of the bear trap pierce your flesh and and crunches your bones. The the hook has has pierced your lip and you are caught on the line that lust has been, 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 been luring you with. And you are then happily being reeled in. You're just along for the ride. See, James is clear here. You are the source of your temptation. You don't need Satan to tempt you. You are your own worst enemy. You are the creeper who lures yourself to get into the car of sin. Apart from Christ, you are a slave to those various passions and pleasures. But if you are in Christ, that is not who you are now. Romans 6, verses 17 to 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, though you had no choice but to listen to lust, You became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. And brothers and sisters, this is why we disciple. You have been committed to a form of teaching. Following Jesus Christ is about obedience. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Christ did not set you free to become a slave of sin, but to become a slave of righteousness. In Christ, you are a new creature with a new master. You have new competing desires. We'll talk about those more. There's a new you eager to please him, to respond to tests with faith. Faithfulness. We are those, if you are in Christ Jesus, who love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And we can look at that lure and say, that's disgusting. Why would I want that? The source of your temptation is not God's sovereign will for your life. It is not what you are going through. Whether it be abundance or destitute, destituteness. It is not his will for your finances, his will for your health, his, uh, his, your health, your singleness, your marriage, your gifts or your lack thereof, your children or your aging parents. Those are just the circumstances that God is testing you. Your problem is lust. So the first truth that, that James has shaken us to wake us here, the first truth is that God is not the origin of our temptation. The second truth is that lust is the origin of our temptation. And the third truth is that lust unresisted ends in sin. Lust unresisted ends in sin. We see this in the first half of verse 15. See, James, in a sense, has already answered the, 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 the initial question that he asked. Is God responsible for our being tempted? No, we are. But now that James has exposed our lusts, he wants to explore where our lust will take us. He's revealed the enemy's tricks, and now he wants to expose the target. James 1.15, Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And lust is pictured here as, as, as a kind of 
of, of, uh, of a adulteress or a seductive woman, like, like the adulteress of Proverbs 7, 18 to 22, where it says, Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with, with caresses, this, 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 this tempting woman says. For my husband isn't at home. He's gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. He's not coming back anytime soon. At the full moon, he will come home. And with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. And this is what lust does with her allure. See, the adulterous lust has been seeking satisfaction. That craving has, has, has been unsatisfied. But before lust will have her craving satisfied, the sinner's will must be persuaded to follow. We have to decide, yes, I will follow. A choice needs to be made. Mental assent has to be given to the lies lust has been spinning. Desire's deceit has to be believed. And many of those lies, one more time, couldn't it hurt? I've been really good recently. I don't deserve to have so much suffering. It's so hot outside. It's been a really hard week. God isn't fair. Everybody's against me. This, this virus thing has gone on for so long. Everyone sins a little. Just one second. Just one look. As soon as lust, lies are believed, will, we can imagine will, you know, our, our, our choice, will heads into the adulteress's doorway. And with that, with just, with just that first movement of will towards lust lies, lust has conceived and it gives birth to sin. Before succumbing to this deception, Will could have resisted temptation. Our will could have said no. Will could have said, no, those are lies. Will could have gone running like Joseph away from Potiphar's wife. How, how could I sin against God and do such a thing? But when Will chooses to listen to lies, lust has conceived and it gives birth to sin. The lust may not have become outward action yet, but it will. The child, sin, will be born. Sin in, 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 in the womb is not yet what it will be, but it is alive. It has, it has been conceived. Many times we feel the battle to keep sin in the womb when already it's been given life and, and, and like some kind of monster, that sin will rip out. It will be given birth because will has already conceived with lust. How will you respond to the lures and lies of lust? Will you endure and continue in faith? Or will you listen to her cravings? The, the, the commentator Douglas Moo says, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation. Praise the Lord. Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. That is what maturing is. That's the whole purpose of trials, to cultivate, to cultivate maturity in us so that we increasingly say no to temptation. 
when you recognize the tricks of your lust and you resist, you obey the Lord. But when you succumb, you give birth to sin. If you're going to say no to to lust, you're going to have to listen to what God's word says. And you're going to need an awareness of lust's lies. What does God's word say about your current opportunities and challenges? God is trying you. He will test you later today in many ways. Not to elicit sin, but for you to demonstrate your faithfulness, that you are listening to him. He puts out enough manna for that day, not two days worth, to see if you're listening. What would he have you think about the money or lack thereof, money in the bank? What would he have you think about the internet at your fingertips? What would he have you think about the mirror in your bathroom? What would he have you think about the food in your fridge? What does he want you to think about the test you're going to face? What does God's word say? Would you not give in to sin? Would you not give birth to sin, saints? You must prepare for the schemes of your cravings. What lust drive you? Is it acceptance, approval, respect, ease, comfort, control, pleasure, security? All of those are not necessarily sin in themselves, but those are the tools that, that, that lust uses, the lies that he tells us that you deserve these things. You must become aware of lust battle plans, its patterns and its path and its lies and how you as an individual person are affected by sin's craving. But even more, and yes, it is good to become wise about lust lies, but if you would say no to sin, if you would not give birth to sin, if you would say yes to the Son, you must cultivate the cravings in your heart of God's Spirit. We worry so often about saying no to sin, but we don't cultivate or grow this new nature that God's given us. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have desires to please Him. Your life's aim must be to love God as Christ did with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So commit now. This is what I want to do. And when you get in the car, I guess you don't get in the car. I'll get in the car. But most of you won't won't get in the car. When when you turn off the television, commit. I want to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And and, and when you go to lunch, I want to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And when you go to bed, I want to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. I want to have the mind of Christ like Paul describes in Philippians 2. I want to have a mind of humility. I want to be like Jesus for, for my food to be doing the will of my Father. I, 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 want to, I want to be like Jesus, not coming to be served, but to serve. I want to walk according to the Spirit. I want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. I want to have my greatest craving to be to please God. I want to do what 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says. Whether we are at home in heaven or away here on earth, we make it our aim to please him. See, this is how we defeat sin's lies, by cultivating a greater consuming fire to please Christ. Oh, commit saints to pleasing him. We must resist lust, but it must be replaced by love. We need the expulsive power of a religious affection. We need to drive out the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life by a greater consuming love of the Father. 
This is how we fight sin. So often we say no instead of focus on saying yes to pleasing him. God is not the origin of our temptation. Our lust is the origin of our temptation. The third truth we looked at is that lust resisted in sin. And the fourth truth is that sin unrepented of ends in death. Sin unrepented of ends in death. And James 1.15, James ends this, this little mini section here and says, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And that word accomplished, we, we, we've seen that root of it already in, in verse 4 as, as, as perfect. When sin is completed, when sin is perfected, when sin is fully formed and mature, sin has its own offspring. Sin gives birth to death. As one commentator describes it, this is the life cycle of sin. Desires the parent, sin the child, and death the grandchild. The point of this reproductive imagery here is that it cannot be stopped. Sin will lead to death. It will give birth to death. Each and every sin ends in death. Do you know that? Each and every sin ends in death. That was the warning in the garden. Genesis 2.17. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And since Adam's sin, we have all suffered death. We've suffered physical death of our bodies being separated from our soul. We've, we've, we've suffered spiritual death of our souls being separated from God, that we are now at enmity with God. And we suffer eternal death of being forever separated from God in both body and soul in hell. Every sin ends in death. Even a single sin against the holy God is worthy of eternal judgment, physical death and spiritual death and eternal death. Every sin ends in death. And either you will die for even one of your sins by being eternally separated from God, or Christ's death will be applied to your account. Either you will be punished by God or Christ was punished by God for your sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who knew no sin, who is perfectly righteous, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, so that we could be rescued from death so that we could be made righteous, so that we could be welcomed into God's presence. Philippians 3, 9 describes how we have this righteousness, how, how we escape death and sin. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, we can never be good enough. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, on faith of saying, I deserve death, but I cling to Christ and his substitutionary death on my behalf, and that is my only hope. Every sin will either end in your death or it ended in the death of Christ. Every sin will either end in your death or it ended in the death of Christ. But James is picturing here more than the consequence of just one sin. Instead, he's picturing sin as a course of life that doesn't persevere under trial. See, James has been talking about the, this, this path of endurance, this path of perseverance. He described in verses three through four how testing 
goes to endurance and becomes maturity. In verse 12, he described how, how, how as we persevere under trials, that as we go through testing, we receive the crown of life. And that's the, the, the path of the person who gets the crown of life. They are tested. They endure increasingly by God's grace. And they receive the crown of life. Well, here, James is building a contrast. He's, he's contrasting again between two kinds of lives. There's a life of endurance that grows in godliness and ends in eternal love of God. And there's a life of listening to the lust of the flesh. A life of succumbing to sin that ends in death. It's a life that ends in eternal judgment, a life that ends in eternal animosity towards God, forever shaking our fist against God, and forever God being our enemy. That ends in eternal regret, that ends wishing not to be there, but yet not wishing that I could could submit to Christ. That is eternal death. See, and those who will not love God in this life, those who will not say no to their cravings, to their lusts, get exactly what they wanted, life apart from God. Instead of the crown of life, they are punished for eternity. And perhaps you're surprised by the stark contrast, and really is. In, in 12, we saw it was wonderful, enduring trials and receiving the crown of life. And now he says, no, but if you listen to your lust... If you choose the path of sin, it will end in eternal death. There seems to be so little wiggle room between these two paths, but that's the way that that really that God's word describes our two paths. Our brother Clifton described that from from the Tower of Babel. Last week we looked at it in Psalm 1, the person who meditates on, on God's law and day and night versus those who sit in the counsel of the wicked. We've seen it already in James, the person who chooses wisdom versus the double-minded. Either you persevere and you pass the test and you receive the crown of life or you listen to lust and sin matures and death reigns. These are the two ways to live. Or really, you could say it's the one way to live and the one way to die. Which is the path that you are on now? Just play it out. Follow along the path. Which are you on? Are you being lured by lust? Is sin maturing and growing in you? Will your life end in eternal death? Or are you enduring in the midst of testing? Are you receiving wisdom from God? Are you submitting to him? And are you awaiting with eagerness the crown of life? Which path are you on? That's what James wants you to ask. If lust reigns in your life, you will die eternally. But if Christ reigns in your life, you will receive the crown of life. The way you respond to testing reveals your destination. Where are you headed? Can you look forward to that crown of life because you see by God's grace and his working in you because of your union with Christ through faith that you are saying no to temptation Are you looking forward to the crown of life? Are you just being led along by your lust, giving birth to sin? And the only thing you're looking forward to is the pit of death. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father, 
Lord, we don't want to be people who find our life here, Lord. We don't want to be people who listen to the cravings of, of lust and just keep going to sin day after day after day. We don't want to be the double-minded man who's stuck between the two ways. We want to be those who pick up their cross and follow Christ, who lose their life for Christ's sake and those who find it. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us, first of all, to in no way in the trials of our life blame you. And then, Father, I pray in your grace that you would help us learn how to fill our lives with the desires you've given us. Lord, may we be dominated by these new desires in Christ that we would learn to say no to the flesh and yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>